Happy Lord's Day. Happy Sunday. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So before we start, I just want to go and give this cadence to all the people, the brothers and sisters who are not with us right now. So a couple of us are on trips. Not like with us like they're dead, but like, you know, they're on trips. <laughs> um, Masa, the college ministry, is having currently a retreat right now. I just came back down from that. And it was really fruitful. It was really sweet. Our first message yesterday morning went on for two hours, which sounds like it's bad, but we weren't just talking. It's, we went on for two hours because there was just so many questions. Um, so it's been really good. Um, after I finish service here, I'm going to go back up. So pray for us. Um, pray for Paul and Tony. I definitely miss them. I'm sure you guys miss them. And they're doing great work over at Vietnam. So let's pray that there's fruit and it's an expansion of his kingdom. Okay, so... This morning, we're going to be continuing the Rhythm of Work series. And my big push last week was for you guys to recognize that we are all in the midst of work. We're a call to work, right? Like school isn't preparing for work. College isn't some preparation for work. It's not like work suddenly becomes work once you're getting paid for it. And that we're all just gearing towards, steering towards trying to retire so that we can cease from working. Um, the Bible has a very different view of work. In reality, we're all in the midst of work whether we're doing chores, being a student, um, being a server, and work is meant for good. Work is meant for worship. We looked up last week how Genesis 1-1, our God is a working God. He started work from the very beginning by creating. And um, as we scatter on Mondays through Fridays, we're also called to work so we can image God and we can give glory and worship to Him. And so today, our word comes from Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 23, Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 23. And the big push for us today is like, we get it, work is a way for us to worship God, but honestly, work is hard. Like work sucks, work is tiring. And so what do we do when we realize that the pressures of work is getting to us, right? What do we do when we feel like we're boggled down, we're stressed, and we know in our heads work should be worship, but it's not mirroring in our hands and in our hearts. What do we do? And Isaiah has an answer for us, 65, 17 to 23, um, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word of God. I'll be reading from verses 17 to the end of 23. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to uh, reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people, my chosen ones, will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For there will be a people blessed by the Lord, they, their descendants, with them. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this beautiful image of the redemption of work, I pray, Lord, that we may be encouraged, 
I pray, Lord, that this word may be sweet. I pray, Lord, that as we look at what Isaiah has written down here, that we may recognize that work is worship and it's pointing to something, that our lives are pointing to something, that there is an end, and this end is not with our death, and this end is in eternity with you, reconciled with the God who loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. So I pray, Lord, at this time, may there be joy in our hearts. May there be joy when we just recognize the fact that us gathering here together is a foretaste of your beauty and what's to come. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so for many of you guys, you may know that I'm a high school teacher. And recently, I left my job at St. John Bosco. And I spent the summer figuring out I want to work somewhere closer to my house. And so I've been, you know, doing a lot of trial teaching samples and stuff. And the, every uh, teaching sample that I do, I always teach on the same poem. And the poem is called Osmandius um, by Percy Shelley. And I love this poem just because of how rich it is, how easy it is for us to understand. And um, if you guys were in high school, maybe you guys have read it. But this poem called Osmandius, in it what happens is that there's a traveler, right? This traveler in this barren desert, in this empty land, and he's just walking through the sandy deserts, and he sees a big statue, a colossal statue of Ramses II, also known as Ramses the Great. And though that name doesn't sound familiar for many of you guys, you guys have probably known who he is. Ramses II is the pharaoh that opposed Moses. So if you guys have watched Prince of Egypt, or if you guys um, have read the book of Exodus, you guys know that this is that pharaoh that led one of the superpowers of its time, built probably the most monuments during Egyptian history, um, was powerful, and uh, was very boastful. And so he built this huge statue, this colossal statue of himself. And when the traveler walks through the sand and sees the statue, he realizes that it's broken. Like, it's completely shattered. Its head is on the sand. Um, its body is torn apart. And there's this big plaque in the front, like this big stand. And on it, it reads, look at my works, ye mighty, and despair. It's almost as if it's boasting, saying, look at how much I've done. Look how great my works were. Look at the civilization. Look at my power. And the traveler looks and sees that there's nothing. It's just sand. Everything is gone. For all the power that this man had, all the work that he put in, there is nothing. And um, I love this poem because I think it perfectly describes the condition of our work today. Right? Last week we discussed, yes, work is a good thing. Work is worship. We're meant to work in worship of Him. Like when you go to your workplaces, you're imaging Him. When you're creative in your job, you're imaging His creativity. When you're honest at your job, you're showing that God is sanctifying you and He's working in you. When you're working hard when no one is looking, you're showing to the world that I speak loudly about my God. My God is good. And there's someone watching me even if there's no one earthly here with me. And so in all of these ways, your work is showing worship. But our work became cursed, right? Our work became harder because of sin. The natural order didn't sin. Work didn't do anything wrong. But from our sin, work has become harder and cursed. We rebelled against the good God. And Paul says that creation was subjected to futility, meaning that creation was put in bondage to corruption. Right? Genesis 3.17 says that the ground was cursed. All natural disasters came about because of you, or specifically because of Adam and Eve. And so work is hard because of us and our rebellion against the great and loving God. 
sin made work toilsome, unfruitful, and forced. And um, you can just look through all professions and know that this is true. If you're a teacher, you're going to teach kids who are going to forget things right away, right? Um, if you're a pastor, you're going to preach things that if you ask a month later, what did I preach on, they're all going to forget, right? If I ask you guys, what was the last thing that Tony preached on? Half of you guys, three-fourths of you guys probably won't know, right? A builder is going to build things that will someday be knocked down. Writers are going to write things that are going to be forgotten. The doctor is in the business of prolonging life, not saving it. And so work is hard. All of this is toil. You're going to come home exhausted, but you're going to have to keep working because guess what? You need to provide for your family. You need to provide for yourself. You need to eat. But with Christ, even though work is hard, we can still give worship to God, right? Um, the gospel doesn't change the conditions of your work, but it does change the conditions of your heart. And so last week, right, we discussed through Christ, we're able to worship God. We are a redeemed people, even though work is not. And what we want to go ahead and address today is that, yes, Work is worship, but there is pressure. When your work is heart-wrenching, when it feels like you're just too stressed, there's nothing left for you to give, what do you do? When you feel like your work is feeling overwhelming, um, it feels unfulfilling, you don't even know what you're doing, um, you feel like you're always being passed over, what do you do? Who do you look towards? Pressure reveals character. And so our sermon in a sentence today is, when under pressure, redeemed people look towards a redeemed work. Let me say that again. When under pressure, redeemed people look towards a redeemed work. So, right, so if you guys walk out today, anyone asks you, what is that one thing you've learned? Or maybe you're at your workplace and your coworkers saying like, hey, what did you do this weekend? Um, you can say, hey, I learned this one sentence at my church, right? When under pressure, redeemed people look towards a redeemed work. And we have three points for us today. Looking towards means placing joy. Looking towards means placing joy. Point number two, looking towards means freedom. Looking towards means freedom. And lastly, looking towards means persisting. Looking towards means persisting. All right, so point number one, looking forward means placing joy. Let me go in and reread just verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. So we're reading this from the book of Isaiah, and I just want to go ahead and put a little bit of context in the book of Isaiah before I start applying this to us and our work, right? Isaiah was a prophet. He was a prophet for approximately about 40 years. He, reigned, or he was a prophet from king, the time of King Uzziah in 739 BC, all the way to King Hezekiah's reign in 701. And so for these 40 years, Isaiah has a minister to all these different kings of Judah, to the people of Judah, and to the people of Israel as well. And keep in mind, during this time, Israel wasn't like a single nation. Israel was split in two. We have the north Israel, or just Israel, with 10 tribes. And we have the nation of Judah on the south with two tribes. And so these two nations were split, Israel and Judah. And Isaiah's pre working predominantly with Judah here. Um, and they had something big in common during this time. Israel and Judah had the common, commonness of a threat, right? Of the nation of Assyria. See, Assyria was this emerging superpower that was going off and just capturing and gobbling up all these other nations. They were conquering 
and they were destroying and pillaging. And so both Israel and Judah were afraid. And in about 17 years later into this uh, of Isaiah's reign, or as time as a prophet, Israel gets conquered, destroyed by Assyria. And Judah, obviously, now is horrified because Judah is not as strong as Israel. And so Judah is under pressure. What are they going to do? Are they going to get conquered? Who are they going to turn to? What can they do? And so Isaiah is like, hey, guys, turn to God. Turn to God. And Judah stands up firm and decides, I'm going to turn to Egypt. And so they decide to turn to their old enemy, Egypt, right? Old grandfather Egypt that at this time is no longer that powerful. But Israel, I mean, Judah goes to Egypt and says, hey, uh, Assyria is coming. Can you help us out? And this entire time, Isaiah is saying, why are you going to Egypt? Go to God. Turn to God. And so the context of this passage is Isaiah saying, hold on, stop right? And the way that Isaiah tells Israel to stop here today is to remind Judah of what's to come, that all their toil, all their work, all their efforts, like they're going to be redeemed. There's going to come a time where God creates everything anew. But this redeemed work is not going to come through um, like Egypt or even Assyria or their own efforts. It's only going to come through the Messiah, through God. Only God can redeem. And so, church, as we enter into this passage, I want you guys to reflect on the dark periods of your work. It could be when you felt like a failure, or when you felt like you didn't deliver, or maybe you felt like everyone else was passing you and you were falling behind, or maybe you felt like you were being cheated and overlooked, or when people were not trying as hard and cheating and compromising and they were just succeeding a lot further than you while you were being left behind. In these moments of darkness, in these moments of pressure, where do you place your hope? Who do you turn to? Um, I remember back when I got my first job. I got my first job, I think, like junior year of high school. I was working as a cashier at a meat sandwich shop. And I only got this job because my mom pulled strings with some like church member in her church. And so I'm just like super nervous. I'm a cashier, and I have no idea how this cashier system works. And guests are coming in, and I'm just super scared because they're ordering things. I don't know what the buttons do. I feel like I'm taking like 30 minutes for every order, right? And, uh, but because I want to please my parents, I want to do a good job, right? I'm doing my best. And at the end of the day, I turned to the boss, and you know, the boss asked me how it felt like I did. And I was like, oh, you know, I tried my best. I think I'm getting the hang of it. And then the boss turned to me and said, yeah, that's great. By the way, we have to let you go. I'm sorry. And so I got fired on my first day. And um, I remember feeling humiliated. Like, I felt like I let my parents down. I felt like I let this, this place down, my work down. Um, and so I wanted to quit, or I wanted to run, right? And this pressure of feeling like work is letting you down isn't new. I'm sure if you guys reflect on all the dark periods of your own workplace, um, you know what it feels like to feel pressure by the conditions of your work. And there tends to be two common responses when people feel pressure. Response number one is people tend to make work idle, like I-D-L-E. Your work is merely this means to an end, a place to serve your own needs. And so work becomes just this way to make money. And sometimes this kind of thinking becomes just blatant and obvious. Like, I work so I can play, 
Work is just work. It has nothing to do with me. I just need the money, right? I'm in it for the money and the things that money can buy. And a person who thinks like this doesn't really care for their job. They only care about the things that their job allows them to do. They'll do anything to stall out time. They'll be looking at the clock, counting the seconds until the job is over. So that's first response. They make work idle. The second response is that they make work their idol, I-D-O-L, right? The pun, I-D-O-L. They make work their idol. Um, it's easy to look for fulfillment from your work. Finding your ultimate purpose in job performance or success in the workplace, when you feel the pressures, suddenly you want to say, like, I'm it, I'm that guy, I can do this. Like, my worth comes from the fact that I have this pressure and I'm handling it through my own efforts and look how great I am, right? For some, this idolatry takes a subtle form of insisting, like, I'm only going to do what I'm made to do. And I'm not going to do anything else that I'm less passionate about. Or for some, this could take the form of constant grinding frustration, a sense that, like, this work is not completely fulfilling. Like, I know I've been given this job, but, you know, I'm just made for something else. Like, I don't feel fulfilled in my job place. A sense that um, they will only do things that give them full fulfillment. And for others, maybe it's the opposite, a deep-seated self-satisfaction in what they've already accomplished. And so two responses for the pressures of work could be that you're idle or you make work your idol. And church, do you fall into these two traps in the dark periods of your workplaces? Is your work removed from your worship? But church, as we see in today's passage in Isaiah, when you feel the pressures of work, when you feel humiliated, when you feel hot, tired, overwhelmed, and you're in a dark place, the question isn't what you turn to, the question is, who do you turn to, right? Think of just Judah, the country's context, as Isaiah is giving this word, right? Judah is about to go to war. They're about to be conquered. In the middle of all of that, you actually have very rich people exploiting the poor all the time. And so just the state of living is terrible. You have vulnerable people, widows and orphans and foreigners, more often than not being marginalized and oppressed and exploited, and work just sucks. But Isaiah, his solution isn't, hey, like, look for this new job, or hey, let me bring this new superpower for you, or etc. His response, his medicine is, look forward to what's to come, right? Because the problem is more than just Assyria. Because today, half of you guys don't even know what Assyria is. For as big of a country it was, it's dead and it's gone. It's more than just the wealthy, right? The problem is more than just the rich people marginalizing the poor. The problem is sin. It's the conditions of our workplace that came from Genesis 3. And so Isaiah's solution for this is look at what's to come, look at the new heavens and new earth, look at the fact that God is going to reverse sin. Right? Isaiah 65, 17 literally parallels Genesis 1, 1. It's like God is saying, hey, remember when I created the entire universe? Guess what? I'm going to go ahead and make that anew. It says in verse 17, right, um, the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. What that's saying there is when you go to the new heavens and new earth, the joy and the grace and the beauty of being with God is going to be so amazing, so satisfying, so fruitful that it's going to make you just eclipse all your memories of your pains in the past. It's going to be so redeeming that everything's going to feel like it's worth it. It doesn't mean like you're going to have this memory swipe, right? It's not like suddenly you're going to forget all about your problems and your sins when you're in heaven. Just like how in Hebrews 8.12, when God says, I will remember your sins no more, it's not like God is like, 
forcing himself to forget your sins and he's just confused and he looks at you and he's like, oh, you must have never sinned, right? That's not what's happening. It's the fact that he will not call your sins to mind in any way to harm and punish you. And in that same way, in verse 17, when it says the former things shall not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, it means that the heavens and the new earth, whatever God grants us to remember of this world, will only serve to deepen your joy, your joy of worshiping God. Everything will be forgotten in the sense that everything that hinders your worship will be excluded or transformed. Your guilt and your sins, your toil, your hatred of work will be transformed because how much, of your, how much you're going to be near possessed by the joy and grace of God in worshiping Him. So church, when you're struggling with the pressures of your workplace, look forward and place your hope and joy in what's to come. Look forward with joy because redeemed people know that this world is simply not worth living for, right? If work truly is worship, then when you feel like you're drowning in the curses that come from work, you turn to Christ. You remind your soul what work was for and how work will be redeemed, right? So that's point number one, looking forward means placing joy. Point number two is looking forward means freedom. Let me say that again. Looking forward means freedom. Let me go ahead and reread verse 18 to 21, right? This is the picture that Isaiah is painting to all these uh, people in Judah. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take the light of my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruits. So in 18, that command, right, is a command for you. That's a present command to the people of God. Isaiah is saying we ought to be glad and rejoice forever because of what's to come, what God will create, the new heavens and the new earth. And in this new heavens and new earth, he will create his people literally to be a joy and a place for them to dwell. Not only that, if we look at verse 19, we see that God himself will dwell with his people again and rejoice with them. There will no longer be anyone crying, weeping, very similar to Revelations 21.4, right? And the language here mirrors exactly like the Garden of Eden. Like this idea that there's this place for God's people to dwell, where God himself will dwell with them, and there will be no more barriers between work, family, and worship. The curse of sin is getting to be reversed, and God is once again dwelling with the people he loves. And there is still work, right? We see that in verse 21. People will build houses and dwell with them. They'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. But that toil, that hardship, that forcefulness, it's all gone. There's complete freedom. Um, I'm sure we can think of many times where we were afraid of um, our performance, of what we can do, what we can, um, we can show out. And so um, the best way for me to relate to this is actually not through a job, something really close. It's the very first time I went to Sadie's in high school. So the very first time I went to Sadie's, I went with this girl named Grace. And um, I was genuinely afraid of going because I didn't know how to dance. I didn't want to show her that I knew how to dance. I didn't know how to dance. And so I just ended up making it up, right? So we're at this dance, I'm with her, and the song comes on, and I'm thinking, all right, I gotta somehow pretend like I know I'm dancing. And so I decide, 
doesn't matter if the song is fast or slow. I think I saw this in movies. You just slow dance, right? So super fast songs, we're slow dancing. And I'm thinking, what do I do? Um, I think you like twirl, right? So I pushed her to the right and she just followed my lead and we just started spinning. And I remember thinking like, I don't know what else to do right now, so we're just gonna keep spinning. So we just kept spinning and spinning and spinning um, until I started getting really dizzy. And instead of, like, that should have been a good disclaimer for me to stop and be like, hey, I'm going to be honest with you. I have no idea what I'm doing. But instead, I decide, you know what? I'm getting dizzy. Let's go the other way. So I pushed her to go the other way, and we just started spinning the other way. And we did that for, like, a good hour. And I just felt dizzy and terrible and wanting to throw up, right? But why did I do that instead of just telling her I couldn't dance? It's because I was so scared of saying I couldn't complete the performance or uh, I couldn't actually do it. And now that I'm older and I'm looking back, this sounds so ridiculous, right? Like, I don't understand why I was so nervous about something so temporary. But it's the same with our work, right? We're so concerned about our immediate bosses. We're so concerned about our immediate performance, how people will see us. But we, don't, we know what's coming next. We have an internal boss that satisfies our every need, that's going to give us complete freedom. And we don't have to be that concerned. This is going to be ridiculous for us to be so concerned about what we're doing with our immediate job. And so us doing our job now well is not about how, how much you can give out. It's about how faithful you are to your eternal boss. And so let me list three freedoms that this eternal perspective on work gives us, right? If we keep our eyes on this new heavens and new earth, like how does that give us three freedoms for us today? It gives us, number one, a freedom to trust. Like, think back to the most recent worry that you had in your workplace. Maybe it's a worry that you wouldn't be able to work enough to meet ends meets. Maybe it's the worry that you'll be let go. Maybe it's the worry that um, maybe you'll get demoted, maybe you'll get a pay cut, maybe you'll get yelled at. In either case, um, what would happen to you if this fear came true? Would God still not be in control of everything? And wouldn't this God love you so much this God who wants to dwell with you for eternity, wouldn't he love you so much that he'll only allow this fear to come true if he knows that it's for your own good? Isn't this God sovereign, the one that created the heavens and the earth? Your God is so big that even if all the angels and demons and everyone are banded together, we wouldn't be able to stop his plans for a millisecond. So this God who is all-powerful, right, is with you and loves you. Wouldn't he take care of you? So yes, your work matters, but work is still going to be redeemed, and you're going to still dwell with him in heaven. And so your performance isn't about how well you did at your job. It's about how faithful you were to your eternal boss, your God. So that's your first freedom. You have a freedom to trust. Number two, you have a freedom to serve. I think we can all relate to the fact it's really rare to find a truly altruistic person in the workplace. Like everyone wants to complain about their jobs. Everyone has an agenda. Like for me, the moment I step into the teacher's faculty room, like everyone's complaining. Everyone hates their kids. Everyone hates the admin. Everyone hates the conditions of their you know, job. The curriculum is always wrong, right? Like there's always something going wrong. But you have the ability to genuinely serve and love others in your workplace with no agenda. Why? Because all that you need is actually met in Christ. And because all that he needs you to do, he will accomplish through you. Our God is big, our God is sovereign, our God is strong. Your need for appreciation, your need for fulfillment, your quest for identity, your desire for security, 
Christ promises all those things for you, and we see that in Isaiah 65, in the new heavens and the new earth. So you have the freedom to serve with no agenda. And lastly, you have the freedom to rest. You have the freedom to rest. Um, Charles Gall has a great quote, and what he says is, the graveyards are filled with indispensable men. Do you really think that this world is going to collapse if you stop working? Take that up with your real boss, Jesus, who created you with a need to rest, a need designed precisely so that you will come to understand each night as you fall into bed that your work does not depend on you. It depends on him. So if we really understood that our assignment is mainly about showing who God is in our work rather than accomplishing specific things with our work, would our lives not change? Like, will we stay up late so often for our jobs? Will we work so often on Sunday afternoons and evenings? Probably not. We can rest because tomorrow in eternity, you have a lifetime or eternity time of rejoicing waiting for you. So that's point number two. Looking forward means freedom. And our final point for us today is looking forward means persisting. Let me say that again. Looking forward means persisting. Let me go ahead and finish out this image that Isaiah is painting from verses 22 to the end of 23. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of the tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. So if you're a Christian here today, you're a chosen, blood-bought, waiting people. But you're not an idle people. Right? If we look at verses 20 to the end of 23, we see a closer insight to why work is redeemed. Like why is this new heavens and new earth so great? Why is all these conditions so great? It is because of the Lord's blessing. It's a language of blessing here that is deliberately phrased to almost combat the exact uh, curses of sin in Genesis 3, right? There's fruitfulness in work. There's joy in work. There's worship in work. And at the end of verse 23, right, we see that reason. It's that blessing that comes from the Lord. And so what does that mean for us? It means that the same blessing that these people have in our passage is the same salvific blessing that you hold to yourselves if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you repent, it's also a strong reminder that work is just a means and not an end. Your worth here on this earth is not in your performance. It is in your value of Christ. We don't value you more here at TLC because you can play the drums or sing or serve or lead a small group. We value you because you are a brother or sister in Christ. So today, our work may not be redeemed like the people foretold in the new heavens and new earth, but we still have the same God and the same thing that we hinge our joy and reliance on. And so if our work is redeemed through Christ's blessing for his glory, we need to persist in our faithfulness. In a world that's so obsessed with results, it's really hard for us to keep our eyes on faithfulness and to remind our soul that what we do here on earth, our work is worship, right? And so how do we remind our soul to be faithful? Um, let me close out with four quick thoughts. How do we remind our soul to be faithful? Um, so thought number one, what I like to do is um, something called a premeditated faithfulness prayer. Premeditated faithfulness prayer. Um, so in your prayer time in the morning or when you're driving to work or just getting ready, what you can do is just pray through what you anticipate doing through that day. But don't simply pray for the results. 
pray that you'll be faithful. Think about what faithfulness would look like in every activity that you do. So something more like, Lord, help me to be gracious to my colleague Sue in this, uh, in this particular meeting, or give me the desire to work hard in this report that I really don't want to do. Where you're at risk of failing Jesus in your day, pray with an eye towards faithfulness. And uh, thought number two, talk about faithfulness. Sometimes it might seem weird to talk about work with your Christian friends, but you're spending like 40, 50 hours a week working in your job places, right? So it seems good for you to turn to your brothers and sisters in Christ and talk about your job. But don't talk about performance or what you're doing and your outcomes. Talk about what Christ is accomplishing. Talk about what faithfulness looks like and talk about how maybe you can bring more of God's kingdom in your workplaces. Uh, thought number three, premeditated annual faithfulness. So something that I like to do is just lay out a list of works that you're doing right now, right? What are your different assignments? Maybe it's to be a husband or wife. Maybe it's to be a good father. Maybe it's to be a good neighbor. Maybe it's to be a good employee at your workplace. Maybe it's to be a small group leader. Then go ahead and the beginning of your year, write out the job description for each of those assignments. And my guess is that Jesus' job assignment for you there is going to look a lot different from what your earthly boss's job assignment may look like. And then you can start evaluating how you're doing against this job description given by or following Christ, right? Repenting for sin where you see and praising God where you see faithfulness. And lastly, number four, what you want to recognize is that being faithful means prioritizing the right things. It means persisting in the right things. Um, the best way for me to kind of explain this is through this man named Cliff Young. This man named Cliff Young. Um, he was a 60-year-old Australian potato farmer in the 1983s. And this potato farmer who grew up in a farm decided to enter an ultra-marathon that went from Sydney all the way to Melbourne. He wasn't a tried athlete. Like, again, he was a farmer. And he showed up to the race wearing work boots and overalls. And so no one expected him to win the race. And at the first day, he was as expected last. But on the last day, he ended up finishing first. And so everyone wanted to know, like, dude, you're so slow. How did you end up winning the race? And it turns out Cliff's secret was that he was a farmer. And farmers have to run long distances to get sheep. And so he's used to running two to three days to get sheep. And so why he won is that over these six days of this ultra marathon, while all the other you know, elite athletes were sleeping, he was running. He was running and persisting. And he ended up winning the race because he just kept running for those hours that everyone else was sleeping. And so persistence looks hard, right? Persistence means keeping your eye on the prize and moving forward. And so in the same way, being faithful to Christ is keeping your eye on heaven and persisting day by day in your faithfulness. And like I said before, you want to be faithful to the right things. And so my last thought here for us today is being faithful or having an eye towards faithfulness is learning when to say no. Learning when to say no. And so I'm not saying that Christian work is somehow more spiritual than your Monday to Friday job. Nor is God more delighted in you when you're volunteering for a retreat as opposed to doing your chores or fixing a window. Both of these things are God's work and they're faithful in their worship. But let's just think about the life of an average, busy, working parent in Orange County, right? Work consumes a lot of time. 
and add maybe like school activities or maybe after school activities, social obligations. And on top of that packed and crazy life, you also have the responsibilities of being a Christian. So you have more stuff to do. And how do you keep all of this together? Well, you could decide you want to live well on four hours of sleep on each night, but that's going to burn you out. More likely, you're going to have to figure out how to say no to something. And as you mature in life, it becomes impossible to say yes to all the things that your non-Christian friends say yes to and still live faithfully as a Christian. You simply can't add more hours to your day and you can't simply run harder. And so in this church, a lot of heartache, I think, comes from figuring that out the hard way. That if you don't say no to something, you'll run yourself into burnout and exhaustion. And if you say no, uh, and if you say no to the wrong things, you risk being faithless and ineffective in some of the callings that Jesus gave you. So you can't take on the commitments of your non-Christian peers, throw Christ on top, and hope that everything balances. Instead, you need to consider what, according to Christ, you need to do to be faithful and the things that you need to say no to and stop doing, right? Again, if you're trying to do all of these things and follow Jesus, you're headed for disaster. Instead, being faithful means recognizing what can you say no to so that you can be persistent in your faithfulness. And so to close out, like I said in my last two sermons, the whole point of work is that it's a means to an end, right? All of your work is just a secondary calling. You going to school is secondary you being a father, mother, etc. all of these are secondary callings to point to your primary calling. And we all share the same primary calling of worshiping God. And so our lives as a church need to speak loudly about the king that we worship. We need to remind ourselves that we're in service to this king. And he has infinite wisdom on where he places us for our jobs. He decides to us which of our talents and abilities he decides to use and how. Like, I get we all want to be generals and commanders in his army, and we all feel, like, miffed when he doesn't explain everything to us and decides to deploy us in the trenches. But isn't that his right as God? And beyond that, can't we trust him, that he's infinitely wise and he loves us? Like, isn't it a gift of magnificent grace that we even get to work for him at all? So when we, who are we to accept grace from his hand and suddenly get angry when we hear our assignment or what jobs we're doing now? Like, if God says, dear child, I want you to work over there in the trenches, I have this brilliant strategy that's unfolding and it won't make sense to you yet, but someday you'll see, we should accept it and move forward. Like, if our hearts are full of faith and love towards our king, we won't reject his assignments. And by faith, we will trust him, serving with joy because we serve the king of kings. It's who you serve that matters. Um, a good illustration for this, I was talking about this yesterday. Um, there's colors that I can't see, right? There's colors that I can't see right now. But when I'm in heaven, I will see all of these colors and it will be beautiful. Like you guys have probably watched videos about people who like put on glasses, like they're you know, colorblind or whatever. They put on glasses and they start crying because they can see all these colors. That's how it's going to be like when you're in heaven. Like you're going to see all the reasons for all the jobs that you did, all the things that God in his infinite wisdom put together, and suddenly everything's going to make sense. And so right now, wherever you're placed at is where God placed you to be. And all we can do is be faithful because we trust as God. And we're not serving our earthly bosses, right? We're serving our heavenly bosses. And so, yes, the conditions of our work are not redeemed. We're still cursed in how we work, but we're redeemed. And we have a redeemed heart. We have a new motivation. And we can offer our work as worship. And so as we scatter tomorrow, let's worship God this week with our work, with our eyes in the new heavens and new earth, and persist in our faithfulness. Let's pray.